from Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C. This is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to Distill D.C., a mini-series from Hamilton Place Strategies, HPS Insights, focused on how communicators distill complexity. I'm your host, Andrea Christensen, a managing director here at HPS, focused on economic policy issue campaigns. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Sarah Pompey. If you Google her, you'll find she is the founder of the Authentic Irpinia, a wine club bringing some of the best Italian wines to America. However, I met Sarah before she became a wine connoisseur. In fact, I'd heard of her before I met her. Sarah was press secretary for Meg Whitman's gubernatorial campaign in California, and then a top communications aide for Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. For a young California Republican, Sarah was someone I looked up to. Then she hired me to join her team when she was communications director for then majority whip Kevin McCarthy. Sarah took me under her wing and was always kind and full of advice, which has proven invaluable. From the world of politics, Sarah moved to the world of technology, first serving as the director of corporate communications for Hewlett Packard and then director of public affairs for Lyft before deciding to trade it all in and start her wine club. So that's where I wanna start. Sarah, you went from being one of the top political and tech communications professionals to starting your own wine club. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about your path and what prompted the transition? Sure. I mean, I'll start off by saying I had absolutely no intention of uprooting my life and kind of, you know, putting aside the career I built to start a wine club. But what happened was um, I went to the village my great grandfather immigrated from in Italy to the United States and fell in love with the, the region and the area and, you know, the idea of helping to bring tourism to this kind of undiscovered hamlet. I kind of wanted everyone to see what I was seeing. There was, you know, this like, you could like feel an electricity in the air there. It was awesome. And one of the ways I realized, you know, in, in kind of using my communications, public affairs crisis background, you know, how do you get people to go somewhere they've never heard of and they don't even know they want to go to Um, And one of the the ways that I found out about it when I was talking to friends, they were, you know, all saying, well, if the wine is so good in this region, why aren't you bringing it back to the United States? And it was kind of like an aha moment. Okay, well, I don't have to get people to come here. Maybe I can bring Irpina to the United States. And that's how the wine club got started. I mean, there was a, I had this nagging feeling people needed to, to know the area. And I, it was kind of an, if not now, when moment where I just knew I had to jump on the opportunity um, and kind of hope that anyone that would listen to me talking would, um, (laughs) would be as well. That's kind of how I ended up starting this wine club and and living part-time in Italy. That's really exciting. I I guess I should say that Sarah is joining us from Italy right now. (laughs) Still here. (laughs) You mentioned, you mentioned that you did use some of your crisis comm skills um, in sort of starting this. So can you talk about what you drew on in it? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, for, for anyone that's worked in communications, you know, from, one of the most interesting things I've found working across the spectrum from politics to a big corporation like HP to, you know, a startup tech like Lyft um, is, you know, you're, you're constantly selling a product, even if the product is a walking, talking human being, like in politics, or, you know, if it's a policy that's just written on paper, it's still something that, you know, if you're going to 
look at it across the board. It's a product that you're trying to sell. Um, so, you know, lucky for me, the, the, what I'm, you know, what we're trying to do here in Italy is, is a, is an awesome product because they're some of the most amazing award-winning wines, um, that you've never heard of, um, and getting people to try these. And then hopefully, you know, once people try the wines, what we found is they want to come and meet the winemakers and come and see the land where the wine is, is made and crafted. Um, and we're lucky that in the United States, you know, there, that, that concept, that idea is already ingrained. Um, it's amazing to me here in Italy, it's not really as wine tourism, if you will, isn't really as much of a thing as it is across the United States. Um, so that's been kind of fun. So doing that. And then, you know, on the crisis side, I mean, nothing has worked out like I thought it would. <laughs> uh, the best laid plans went, went up in smoke as fast as you could snap your fingers. Um, you know, I was actually pretty proud of myself. I went to the Italian consulate. I looked for the right visa. And pretty much every single thing they told me ended up not being true when I got back to Italy to try to implement everything they did. And they managed to omit a pretty important fact um, that I would need 500,000 euros, which is about approximately 687,000 US dollars in a bank account in order to get this small business visa, independent work visa that I wanted. So not only was everything wrong that they told me, they, <laughs> they omitted needing half a million euros in a bank account. So, I mean, if that didn't prepare me for what was going to happen down the road, I don't know what could, but as, as we know in, from communications and from these backgrounds, you have to be prepared for everything. And so you roll with the punches and you just find the next way through, you find the next way to figure it out and, um, you know, read through the lines. One of the things they did tell me in the Italian consulate was that if my business was founded in the U S you know, I could do this on a tourist visa because I could be on vacation in Italy, um, and working from here if I wanted to, to be staying in Italy longer periods of time. So that's actually what I've, I've, um, it was a suggestion. And one of the things I've learned from Italians is suggestions are actually them telling you what to do. <laughs> so cultural differences, but, um, that's, that's what I've been doing. I've been traveling around the world. Um, and the other great thing about being in communications and when you have the backgrounds like Andrea, like we have, um, I was actually able to start my own consulting firm as well. Um, I keep joking. I was ahead of 2020. I, you know, working from anywhere, doing your job from anywhere, working from home. I had um, clients, you know, big name San Francisco clients, but I was doing the work um, while I was traveling, what, whether it was Italy, across the United States, um, Japan. I, I definitely took some, some interesting phone calls from Japan when I went to go visit, but um, it was kind of an eye-opening experience that, you know, you can, you can do and these jobs from anywhere. Um, and the, I think the more cultural experiences that you have outside of the United States, the more it helps your understanding of larger issues policy-wise or product-wise. Um, just understanding cultural differences also helps. So, that's, yeah. that's great. Thank you. Um, and wow, on the uh, 500,000 euro. <laughs> I mean, a small omission. <laughs> Small, small. Um, so going back a little bit um, broader uh, to, to the kind of pre-wine days, yeah. um, I, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about uh, some of the hardest 
things you've had to communicate. So as you know, we often have to talk about complex issues to non-expert audiences. Sometimes we're not even the expert um, talking about the issue. And so if you look back across your communications career, what stands out as the most complex or difficult communications challenge you faced and how did you deal with it? Yeah, I mean, this that's a great one. The first thing that pops into mind, I have to tell you, is when I was working at HP, actually, um, I was running the the worldwide issues in, in crisis practice. And um, a few years before I had started, HP had acquired a company called Autonomy. Um, and when they were integrating the two companies, it, they realized that what they found was massive accounting fraud um, that had led to a $13 billion sales price, purchase price by HP. But what they were realizing is there was like, really not like, I think they took, it was an $11 billion write down at the end of the day. Um, And so what happened is HP sued the owners of autonomy for basically, to put it in simple terms, accounting fraud. So, you know, there was a massive lawsuit. It was taking place in two countries. So you have cultural difference, even though it's the UK and they speak English, massive cultural differences. And what do I know about accounting laws, you know, not only in the United States, but spanning and, you know, international accounting laws. So like you said, you know, a lot of the times we're dealing with issues we don't know anything about. I had to learn, you know, the basics of accounting, all the laws that surround international acquisitions in accounting. Um, so that, you know, this is a subject where experts are paid seven figures annually to, to be, you know, to know what they're talking about. And here I am trying to figure it out on the fly while reporters are pelting me with incoming phone calls about what we're saying and doing. So it was a very, you know, personally, it was a, a huge growth experience. Um, and I, you know, cause I, I, Look, our knowledge in comms is, I joke, it's always a, a mile wide, but an inch deep. I, ha- I had to go a little deeper than an inch on this one. Um, but for any number of reasons, it was, it was a huge issue. The, the owner, Mike Lynch, he hired his own PR firm as well. So, you know, we weren't like, we were dealing with, with a massive um, onslaught um, of issues. And uh, it was, it was very, very interesting. <laughs> it sounds very interesting and very difficult too. Yeah. Talk about um, it, federal court and the whole thing. So, I mean, looking back on that, um, is there anything that you would have done differently or thought about differently from a comms perspective? Yeah. You know, I think, gosh, it was a massive learning. I had a lot of people along the way telling me that the ideas and tactics that I were coming up with to try to get ahead of the media narrative and the media cycles um, wouldn't work. Um, They couldn't be done. We've never done it like that. That's not how things work here. I mean, you know, you don't understand the judicial process and legally they're, you know, our, our opponents were not allowed to do what I said that they were going to do. And so, you know, they kind of, my, I felt like my hands were tied a lot. And because it was a legal case, you know, you, you have to kind of work with the lawyers, work with the accountants. Um, You don't want to screw up a billion dollar lawsuit. That's, you know, do no harm is the first rule in in what we do. Um, So, you know, what happened was we went into the first round of the lawsuit and the things that I'd predicted to the team 
all took place. Um, and so after we got kind of pummeled in the press the first round, everyone was more open to new ideas <laughs> and, and going forward. And actually the good news was that because I then had the people's, I had everyone's trust and they could see that I, I knew what I was talking about from a communication standpoint, not from a legal or accounting standpoint, we were able to work together more cohesively and went on to great success on, on being able to put together our case in the media um, because, you know, this wasn't just taking place in the courtrooms. There were analysts that were looking at, you know, how could the company have, you know, not known these things. There were um, reporters, you know, asking who was at fault and where, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So being able to turn doubters and, you know, not in this case, I wouldn't call anyone my enemy, but in some of these cases, it can get very combative, combative in, in, in uh, corporate America. Being able to turn folks into allies is one of the smartest things you can do. You know, building that trust early on, I think, is, is something that I'm really grateful that we were able to do in short, in short turnaround. So, yeah, that's, that's awesome. And I, I definitely always love when as a communicator, you're met with skepticism. And then over time, um, you win allies and supporters. And yeah. uh, it's just a really great feeling. I uh, mean, I exactly, exactly. And, you know, of course, you always wish like, well, if we'd just done it, you know, from the beginning, but sometimes you have to take a step back to take two forward. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, let's let's take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll talk okay. about advice to other communicators. Every Friday, Hamilton Place Strategies founding partner, Tony Fratto, joins John Fagan and Brendan Walsh of Markets Policy Partners for the HPS Macrocast, an in-depth look at the macroeconomic news driving the week. Check out the latest episode at hamiltonplacestrategies.com slash podcast. We're back on Distilled DC, a mini-series from HPS Insights on communicating complexity. I'm here with Sarah Pompey, and we're about to get her advice to new and seasoned communicators looking to excel in their career or change it. So Sarah, here's a question. If you had to isolate one or two tools seasoned communicators should work on honing, what would they be? Man, I think I think one of the first and most important lessons you can learn as a communicator is to stop talking when you are done saying what you want to say. You need to be comfortable with silence, even if it's awkward, even if you feel like you need to fill the space. That's what the other side is hoping you will do. When you've made your point, stop talking and be calm and confident about it. I love it. And you just did it right there. <laughs> I did it. No, and I also think I, another another huge way to, to really prove your mettle when you're working with reporters or when you're working with colleagues or when you're, um, you know, pitching business is to make sure you have your facts and figures to back up the points that you're trying to make. I'm a big fan of the rule of three. I always have at least three points I can turn to that back up whatever I'm trying to say, because you can't just be right or justified in what you're communicating. Your job is to make the subject matter easy to understand and relatable for the whole population. So, so do that. Don't, don't anticipate the questions that you're going to be asked and have, have facts that make it easy and relatable for, for your audience to, to understand what you're trying to communicate. And then stop talking when you're done. <laughs> I love it. Succinct, concise, all the things it needs to be. 
Um, and, and all seasoned communicators can certainly um, be reminded of that. Um, there are times it's not easy, right? <laughs> right. Well, I often find that I say what I just said again, but in a less collected way, which ends up in people's not paying attention anymore. Right, right. Exactly. Um, well, it was interesting because when I was, you know, just, I guess I wasn't just starting out, but I was still pretty young in my career when I worked for you and you were really, really instrumental in a helping me learn to like read um, the room a bit better, um, understand the internal politics of things and adapt to that. Like I really learned that to be a good communicator, you also have to kind of be a chameleon. Um, and you have to, you have to meet people where they are, not necessarily where you think they should be. And, um, and so that's something I definitely learned from you, but I'm curious if there's a good piece of advice you'd want to give to young people just starting out in their communications career. Gosh, well, first, like, that is a huge compliment. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taken aback. That's awesome. I'm so glad that, that I was able to help you, uh, you know, help with that. And I mean, that's something I'm still learning. Those, those are the hardest situations, you know, the hardest things to, to really do is, is learning to read the room. Um, It took me a long time to learn to just kind of just sit back and observe at first. Um, But I think, you know, in, in that observation, one of the things that the piece of the pieces of advice that I would give that I think are the most important is to build trust with everyone you work with. And that kind of goes into what you were talking about, about reading the room and, and internal politics, you know, whether it's within your organization or an organization that you're working with, um, whether it's reporters and colleagues or the client, um, the, building a trust with the opposite party will get you through more sticky situations than just about anything else. The minute that you lie or mislead or misrepresent the truth on any level with any of the people that you're working with, you're going to have destroyed your credibility in the long run. And that's something you can't get back. Your reputation is the, is, is priceless. And, you know, having, people knowing that they can trust what you're saying um, is the most important thing that that you can do as a communicator that you can have in your arsenal of, of, of weapons. Um, You know, and at the same time, what another, I think, you know, what uh, another part of that is not being afraid to say, I don't know, let me get back to you on that. There, I've never gotten, it's something, it's counterintuitive because you would think when you say, I don't know, let me get back to you, that people are going to pile on. When in fact, most of the, I'd say 99% of the time reporters or other folks will be like, oh, that's great. She's being very honest with me. It like comes off very sincere. So I think not, not being afraid to say you don't know and ties right into never misleading anyone and always being above the board. Love it. Um, so as someone who has completely changed their career, um, what, what about people who are thinking, do I want to continue in communications for the rest of my career? Like how, how, how did you know you were ready to make a change and, and what advice would you give to those who are contemplating a change? Look, I'll be very honest with you. I didn't, 100% know I was ready for a change. You know, I really, (laughs) I loved my job. I loved what I was doing, you know, public affairs at Lyft in 2016 and 2017. It was 
it was so much fun. We were, it was a great team. I had some of the best colleagues, some of the best bosses. It was a mission, you know, driven company. I'd worked it, you know, for great people before that. Um, but I, again, I just had that nagging sensation that there was something else out there. Lucky for me, you know, when I looked at, am I, absolutely insane. I literally, I think I asked literally every single person in San Francisco, if I was insane for doing this, including therapists and everybody. Um, but what I finally did is I, I looked at, okay, what's the worst case scenario if I decide to try this and it doesn't work out. Luckily, you know, I planned and saved and, um, I knew, you know, in the work that, that I was doing, it was very niche and I'd probably be able to find another job you know, within six months or a year, if I, if I came back, if things didn't work out the way I wanted. So that was a huge buffer for me. Um, but I, I, it goes back to, you know, if you, if you're passionate about something, if you really feel something deeply and you have the ability to, to try it without, you know, too many negative repercussions, go for it. What's the worst thing that happens? Like, no, you know, you're worried what people are going to think, you know, I was worried at one point I thought, I actually thought I was going to start a, um, a travel agency of sorts to bring people to Pina. And that again, you know, with the myriad of other things that didn't work out with the Italian consulate, that plan vanished within a month. And I remember I, I actually called one of my good friends, Kim, and I said, what are people going to say when I, I wasn't able to do what I said I was going to do? And she was like, who cares what anyone thinks? Like, go figure, you know, go, go be happy. And I was like, that's a good point. I'm going to go do what I can. And that's what started the wine club, which is so much more fun and so much more people are loving it and loving the wines. And it's really bringing your pina to the United States instead of forcing people to try to take a week or two off of work and actually get to Italy, which, you know, real hardship, I know, but, um, uh, you know, so, so, you know, be open to everything. And if you're passionate about it, try it out. Maybe you can, and if there's a way you can try doing it as a side job first, do that. Um, everybody's situation is going to be different. There's no one way to do it. That's kind of what I've learned. And if it brings you joy and brings you happiness, go for it. Like, just go for it. I I can't, it's the 90% of the time. It's the best decision I ever made. 10% of the time where things don't work out, you really feel it, but that's kind of the, 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 I don't know, the balance of, of getting to be in Italy and sell, you know, bring over import amazing wines. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. And I want to ask you more about your wines in a second, yes. but you mentioned 90, 10. So let's Ooh. say that 10%, that 10% of the time you're like, maybe I got to do something else. What's the one person or company um, who could bring you back uh, into the communications realm? Man, I- Honestly, even with the 10% of the time when it's bad and it's real bad, I, I, I don't know that there is anyone that could bring me back. Me, maybe a Formula One team. I've gotten super into Formula One from the Netflix series. I think it's Drive to Survive. I love it. I like. Well, I love Formula One now. And what, maybe if one of those teams came calling and they were like, hey, come work for us, I could I could probably do that. Um, maybe, but, um, no, there's, I, I honestly, I'm loving this so much. I'm, you know, loving the, the idea that we're going to, that I can help, um, bring these winemakers, you know, into the more mainstream and get more people to, to know their wines. It's, it's just been, it's been amazing. Okay. 
So you are you are committed to wines and maybe for I think so. In Pina, more more the region. Um, this region. I, it's just I, I the the food, the wine, the people, it's just unbelievable. There's nothing else like it. Okay, so what is the best bottle of wine from Irpinia? The best bottle of wine from that, like anybody that's talked to me in the lab, you know, about the wine club, they, I get teased all the time because every every bottle, I'm like, this is my favorite. They're like, you said that about the last ten. I'm like, no, but they're, they're all my favorite. I think one of the craziest bottles from Irpinia that I drank was um, a bottle of 1999 Fiano d'Avellino from Cantina del Barone. Um, it's a white wine and it was 20 years old. It could have aged another 10 years. And being from California, I've never heard of white wine that you drink after what, maybe five years at the most. Um, but all of these white wines are so structured and big, you know, I'm tell everyone, you tell me you don't like white wine, just try one of these. And I'm at a hundred percent success rate. Everyone loves them. Um, so it, that's been pretty fun, but I've had the chance to drink some some pretty crazy bottles from all over the world um, in, in doing this. Some like 19 bottles from like 1950 and 1960 that I never, never would have imagined. But I, I overall, the, the, the bottles that I love the most are from kind of, of course, from undiscovered regions and like from things that I haven't tried. The, the Bordeaux are great or, you know, the, the big Cabernet Sauvignon from California, but I'm into Georgian wines the country, Georgia, um, and, you know, outside of Irpina. And there's some other really small regions in Italy that I'm, I'm really loving. Sic- Sicilian wines are, are, you're finding them more and more in the U.S., which I'm excited about. Um, but yeah, Irpina wines, that they're, they're big, bold wines on every level, the whites and the reds. And you'll be the first person to know about them for the most part. There are some sommeliers that don't even know the region that I've met. You know, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, so we went, we took a trip to Slovenia a couple of years ah. And the wine there, yes, mind. it was so good. And I went to a wine store. I said, hey, can I buy some and ship it? Back yeah. Because I never found it. And they told me that there's all of these limitations and restrictions on their ability to ship wine. So, I mean, what have, have you run into kind of some of these similar problems? Oh my gosh. These wine laws are, this is, and this is, you're kind of getting into like the future of how am I going to use my communications and public affairs background? Like we're, we're just, you know, I've got the shipping, like I've luckily I've partnered with Schneider's of Capitol Hill in Washington, DC, and they have all the licenses to import and distribute the wines. Um, and they, they're wonderful. Like go to Schneider's. They're the best. They've been absolutely phenomenal to work with. Um, but yeah, these, these laws are based on prohibition era regulations and situations. Um, they're not made for, they're not made to make it easy to bring over boutique wines or small production wines. Um, you know, the wine makers that I work with, they're making 50,000 bottles a year or less, which is like unheard of nothing. Like, you know, I think so it's really, it can be really challenging. Luckily I have a great partnership with Schneider's. They make things so much easier, but no, the, the, the rules and laws are, are bonkers. Um, you cannot really, and I'm hoping that someday we'll be able to change that. I think that the, the larger, the larger importers and distributors don't want to make it easy for, for small, smaller um, companies to, to bring over the wines. They're scared. It's going to hurt their bottom line. And my thing is, well, then bring over better wine and you won't have a problem. (laughs) So we'll see. I'm that's, that's my, you know, on my 10 to 20 year plan is to try to, you know, get together with a group of people. I mean, it hurts, 
it hurts the little guy. Um, and in, in this day and age when, why shouldn't I be able to sell wine online and register, you know, for all 50 states, then you get into the whole federal versus state. Each state has its own laws. So you can't get a license to sell across the United States. You have to go to each individual state, which is, I, I don't know. It's a lot. Well, it sounds like a really fun economic uh, policy public affairs issue. I know I may have to be coming to you, Andrea, and getting your getting your help. Um, okay, well, thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, thanks for tuning in to Distilled DC, a mini series from HPS Insights. Um, if you're into Italian wines, be sure to check out the Authentic Irpinia at theauthenticirpiniawineclub.com. And you can find out more about Hamilton Place Strategies work in our podcast at www.hamiltonplacestrategies.com or by following us on Twitter at HPS Insights. I'm your host, Andrea Christensen. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insight and visit us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com.